Uh, but I encourage you to go and read through the Gospels, to read about Palm Sunday and Passion Week as you prepare your hearts for Easter and the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. Um, I am going to run through 10 symptoms, 10 symptoms, very, very quickly. And I want you to take a mental note in your hearts. Keep track of these. I'm going to go through them very quickly, and then we'll talk about them afterwards. The first symptom is irritability. You get mad. You get frustrated. You get annoyed way too easily. Little normal things irk you, especially as you think about how you interact with your family, your spouse, your children, your parents. The second is hypersensitivity. Minor comments hurt your feelings. Minor things quickly escalate into major emotional events. They might show up as anger or anxiety, depression, tiredness. Ordinary problems have a disproportionate effect on your emotional well-being. The third is restlessness. You can't relax. You can't focus. You try to read the Bible, and it's just so boring. You toss and turn at night. You can't get a good night's sleep. You try to watch TV even, but simultaneously, you're doing something else. The fourth thing, workaholism or just nonstop activity. You just don't know when to stop. Or worse, you just can't stop. Accomplishment and accumulation or your drug of choice. Number five, emotional numbness. You don't have the capacity to feel another person's pain. You don't have the capacity to feel your own pain. Empathy is a rare feeling for you. Number six, out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity, from your calling. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, but not the important. You're busier than you've ever been in your life, yet you still feel like you don't have the time to do what really matters to you. Number seven, lack of care for your body. You don't have the time for the basics, enough sleep, daily exercise, good and healthy eating. Instead, you run on caffeine, you run on sugar, you run on alcohol. Number eight, escapist behaviors. When you're too tired, to do what is actually life-giving to our souls, to your souls, we, what we do is we each turn to our distraction of choice, overeating, over-drinking, over-browsing social media, over, or, or binge-watching Netflix, surfing the web, etc., etc. All of these things are not bad in and of themselves, but when we abuse them, we do it to escape reality, and these things, instead of giving life to us, eat us alive. Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. When you get over busy, the things that are truly life-giving are the first to go, rather than being your go-to. Bible, reading your Bible, prayer, Sabbath, worship, fellowship. The irony is, these life-giving activities take self-discipline and energy. And when we don't have the energy or the discipline, um, because we're so busy, because we're so tired, what we do is we substitute them for something else. We substitute them for easier things. And after we've finished binge eating, binge drinking, binge watching Netflix, we never feel alive. We don't feel rested. We don't feel refreshed. We're just more tired. 
You're just more beat down. And the cycle continues. And finally, isolation. You feel disconnected from God. You feel disconnected from others. You feel disconnected even from yourself. You're so stressed and distracted that your mind can't settle down long enough to enjoy God's company or the company of your friends or even yourself. You come face to face with the void that is your soul and immediately you run back to the familiar feeling of busyness and distraction. And so I want to ask you, how did you score? Could you relate to some of those things? Symptoms of an epidemic that plague us all, and I'm not talking about COVID. These are symptoms of hurry sickness. And hurry sickness is a behavior or pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. It's described as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform each task faster and then to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. And this, this term, hurry sickness, it was coined by a person named Meyer Friedman, and this is how he described it, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Meyer Friedman was a cardiologist, and he noticed, he observed that in his at-risk cardiovascular patients, that all of them, not all of them, many of them displayed anger. Many of them displayed this harrying sense of time urgency. Friends, he made this observation in the 1950s. Imagine our life now, fast forward some 70 years. And this list, this, this, uh, this list of symptoms is taken from a book by John Mark Homer. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I highly recommend it if, if you get the opportunity. And so it's safe to say that all of us are in a hurry. Even our kids are in a hurry. I did youth ministry for a few years and... Wow, I, was, I just felt so bad for the youth these days because they are so busy with so many things. We're all rushing from one thing to the next. And the truth is if we don't get what we want, when we want, in the way that we want it, we get anxious, we get depressed, we get angry, we begin to doubt God, we begin to question him. So we don't really know what it means to wait. Turn now with me, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 40. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the whole congregation would stand before the reading of God's word. And so, if you are able, I would like now to invite you to please stand with me before the reading of God's word here this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21 through 31. That's the reading of God's word. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he, he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is inerrant, infallible. It is perfect. It teaches us who you are. It teaches us who we are in light of who you are. And so we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that we might hear your word and that it might be implanted in our hearts and that it might bear much fruit today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Like Pastor Peter mentioned, this, well, this particular chapter, I should say, is a chapter that it changes tones from the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And what it is is a chapter of comfort given to the, uh, the Israelites as they experience exile. And why did they need comfort? See, when the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, it completely devastated their worldview. They believed they were the chosen people. They believed that God would protect them. They believed that God would never break his promises. And spoiler alert, they were God's chosen people. He did save a remnant. He did protect them and he never broke his promises. But you see, from their viewpoint, the circumstances looked very, very bad, didn't it? The temple was destroyed. They were taken to a foreign land. The rule and reign of David had ostensibly been ended. And it seemed like God was not there for them. It seemed like that he had abandoned them. But in these verses, what we see is God reminding the Israelites just who he is. And so the outline is very, very simple. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is good. And we'll spend some time in the application to see what that means for us in our lives. But first, God is sovereign. In verses 21 through 24, it shows us, it tells us that he has the control and the authority. And it does that by rhetorically asking the Israelites these four questions. Do you not know? Do you not hear? 
And here the meaning is ongoing. It means something like, have you not continually known? Have you not repeatedly heard? It's a reminder. And what is it a reminder of? It's a reminder that God is sovereign. The Israelites, they knew this about God from the time that they were very, very young. They heard it. They've been taught it. They read it. They sang it. They prayed it their whole lives. And God is saying through Isaiah that he is the one that has authority. He is the one who sits above the circle of the earth, who takes the heavens and opens them up like a curtain. And this is not a statement about the roundness of the earth. This is a statement of God's reach, God's ability to see beyond the horizon, beyond what we can see into all of the earth. In verses 23, it says that princes are brought to nothing. Rulers of the earth are as emptiness. Authorities of the earth are nothing compared to God. We know in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, God tells us to submit to the authorities. Why? Because they're so great? No, it's because they derive their authority directly from God himself. In verse 24, though, it tells us that their lives are short. The authorities, the the, the authorities on the earth. Their lives are short. They're fleeting in comparison to God. They're like a crop that takes root in one moment, but is easily taken out, blown on, withers, and is blown away. So imagine a dandelion. You pick it, and it's very delicate. It's very light. You blow it, it blows the seeds. I remember one time my daughter, when she was very young, loved picking dandelions. And in a great effort to blow these seeds, she actually... Suck the seeds in. (coughs) Coughing. These are very, very delicate. And the rulers of this age, the princes, the governments, they are all fleeting and delicate, just as these dandelions. And one commentator says, God, he originates all, maintains all, controls all in operation, and directs all to their appointed goal. And so for the Israelites... This gave them hope because it meant that their exile was not a mistake. It was under God's control. He wasn't caught by surprise. He didn't know that it was going to happen. But he allowed Babylon to come. He allowed them to take them away. And even though the exile might have shattered their worldview, it was still a hope for them because... It meant that God had a reason for it, that God had allowed it, and that it was according to God's purposes. It doesn't mean that they necessarily understood it. It doesn't mean that they necessarily understood the reason behind it. But the hope was that it was God who was in control. Secondly, God is powerful. If he's able to establish and remove the princes and rulers, blow them away like they're nothing, Why didn't he stop Babylon from coming in and taking the Israelites into exile? He had the authority, but did he lack the power to do so? And of course, the answer is no. Isaiah says that God is the creator God. He is powerful enough to create from nothing, from simply speaking. He created the whole earth, and not only that, the entire universe. And the Israelites knew this as well. They grew up with this. 
It was clearly spelled out to them in Genesis. But in verses 12 through 17, Isaiah reminds them by describing this greatness of God as creator. And it's vivid imagery. He says, he measured the waters in his hands. He marked off the span of the heavens, weighing the mountains and and the hills. And he says, all the nations of the earth are nothing before him. And Isaiah goes on to say in verses 18 through 20, he says, How can you then compare the power and the greatness of this God to man-crafted idols? How can you compare the powerful, incomparable God, creator of the universe, to a carved image that you have created, that you have made with your own hands? In verse 26, he goes on to tell the Israelites, lift up your eyes to see the starry hosts, the heavenly objects in the sky. And he's saying, you can see the greatness of the starry hosts, and you could choose to worship the natural order. But it is God who is the one who put them in their place. There are billions of objects in the sky, and we don't really see that, right? Because of light pollution and all that. But he has created billions of objects in the skies, stars, planets, galaxies. And not only that, he calls them by name. He knows each by name because he has created them. And he sustains them all according to his power. And so for the Israelites... This reminder, reminder, it would have strengthened their faith in God because it meant, again, that their exile was not by mistake. It was not because God had, didn't have the power to prevent it if he had wanted, but it meant that this plan for their exile was according to his purposes. It would have strengthened their faith because it meant that he could also deliver them. He had the power to save them. And finally, God is good. So what if he's sovereign? What if he's powerful? You know, many world leaders, past and present, have had authority, have had power. But they've abused it for their own gain. They've abused it for other nefarious purposes. Was God for them? Or was he against them? And we didn't read verses 1 through 8, but Isaiah tells us, God is good. God is gracious. He is a God of comfort. He is a God of consolation. He speaks tenderly to Jerusalem. He cries to her. He tells them that he's preparing a way for them. He's making crooked paths straight. He's leveling the mountains. He's filling in the valleys. He's preparing for their rescue, for their salvation. In verse 11, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful section. It says, it tells us that God's, it tells us about God's goodness and God's tenderness. Because it tells us that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Verse 27, he tells the Israelites something. He says that he sees them. 
He sees their distress. He sees their suffering. He sees the oppression and their plight. He's not blind to them. And he has not disregarded them or their situation. And what we see in verse 28 is a reiteration of all who God is, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is good. Have you not heard the Lord is the creator and he never grows tired. He never grows weary. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's not bothered or distracted. He doesn't have too much on his plate. He doesn't forget. God has always been there. God is always there. God will always be there. And what does he do? He gives power to the faint. He increases strength to the ones with no might. He renews their strength. Who? Of those who wait for the Lord. They will mount up with wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. This process of flying and running and walking, it talks to the the totality of the human experience. Because in a sense of, in a burst of of divine strength or, or a spiritual high, you might feel like flying. You might feel like you can do all things and endure all things and persevere through all things. But the truth is, many times we're simply running. And let's face it, these days, many times, we're lucky if we're even walking. And so for the Israelites, this gave them peace. Because it meant that God had not abandoned them. It meant he knew their situation. He heard their cries. He saw them where they were. It meant he not only had the power to save them, but he had a plan to save them. God's goodness encouraged them to wait for their deliverance, to know that he he would provide. And this peace allowed them to live for the good of the city, as they're told to do in Jeremiah. So then what about us? What does it mean for us to wait on the Lord, knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he's powerful, knowing that he's good, You see, waiting in and of itself is not an automatic fix to our hurry sickness. But it can lead to the remedy. And the reason why it's not an automatic fix is because you can actually go through an entire season of waiting and not gain anything except more worry, more anxiety, more bitterness, more frustration, more depression, more anger. Why? Because your waiting was completely passive. It was non-interactive. It was disconnected from God. Your waiting was done through your own strength, with your own understanding, with your own expectations, based on your own agenda and your own desired outcome. How do we turn our waiting into a blessedness? We need to just not wait, but we need to wait for the Lord. Waiting on God's sovereignty, it brings us hope. And think about it like this. Waiting on God's sovereignty brings us hope because it can be a time of preparation. Imagine Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. 
He was then called to manage Potiphar's house, which he did. He was falsely accused and put in prison, and then he managed the jail. And the whole time, I'm sure he's thinking, I just want to get out of prison, and I want to go back to my home. God had other plans. He rose to to be second in command of all of Egypt. He was then put in a position to not only save Egypt, but to save his family, to save God's chosen people. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Think about Moses. He killed the Egyptian and he ran into the wilderness. And the Bible, it, it kind of glosses over this very, very quickly, but he was a shepherd then for 40 years. And God didn't speak to him via the burning bush until he was 80. So he learned what it meant to lead sheep in the wilderness before he led God's people in the wilderness. If God is calling you to wait, perhaps he's preparing you for something. He's raising you up to become someone he will use in a way you've never imagined. Maybe he's preparing to use you in a way, in exactly the way that you imagine. But regardless, either way, we have to remember that God is the one who is sovereign so that everything is happening exactly the way he has planned. Put your hope in God and his plans for you. Like Pastor Owen mentioned, we returned to the U.S. in July of 2020 to process our visa. And we came with carry-on bags because we thought we'll be here two weeks, maybe a month tops, and we'll go back and it'll still be summer. And uh, eight months later, we're still here. Not only that, we've temporarily moved from California to Maryland, something we never thought we would do. And to be honest, there have been plenty of reasons for us to lose hope. Taiwan keeps opening and closing their borders. The girls' school, which they were attending, told them that they could no longer support their online learning. Our apartment which we had, uh, our, our landlord decided that she didn't want to renew our lease because she didn't know when we were going to come back. And to, to be quite honest, each time something like that happened, it felt like a blow. But we firmly believe God is preparing us now for something that is to come, something that he wants us to be ready for, and our hope is in him. And in his love and in his mercy, he renews our hope right when we need it. You know, like a positive step in the right direction. Just an email from the embassy or a phone call. All of these little things, the small things that give us hope. It reminds us that God is working. So in his sovereignty and timing, he will put you in a place where he wants you to be. To do the work that he wants you to do. And... He will give you all that you need at precisely the right time. This brings us hope because we recognize that our whole life ultimately is not in our control. And since we know that God is sovereign, we know that our our entire lives are in his hands. He will accomplish his plans and purposes for us. And he will do it perfectly. 
To me, it brings us hope because it's not up to us. If everything were up to me, it would make me feel utterly hopeless because I know I have very little control over anything. But as we wait on God's, uh, we wait on God's sovereignty as it strengthens our hope. We wait on God's power because it strengthens our faith. It increases our longing. Abraham was 75 years old when he was promised a son. And then when he was 100, Isaac was born. Hebrews 11 commends him for his faith. Romans 4, 18 through 21, it tells us that he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body or the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver, but he grew, str- he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. In Paul Tripp, he says, he says this, During his wait, Abraham became a student of the character and power of God. The more he saw God for who he is, the stronger his faith became. He meditated on the glory of God, not on the difficulty of his situation. Friends, waiting is an opportunity for you to strengthen your faith in God, to grow in your knowledge of who he is, his character, and to do it actively, How? By spending time in his word, meditating on who he is, his character, his wisdom, his power, all of his attributes. And might I add, it's also an opportunity for you to get to know yourself a little better as well. What are the areas of sin in your life, of weakness, of idolatry? Where are your struggles? Waiting strengthens your faith because you believe that God is going to do all that he promised, that he's going to accomplish his plans and purposes for your life, no matter the state of your life now. You know, during our time of waiting, we've had the opportunity to question our call. Is this a sign that God didn't call us to Taiwan? Is God closing the door there? Should we think about other areas? Should we go to Japan? Should we go to Cambodia? We even thought, how about Australia? They speak English there. How about Hawaii? And the more we wrestled with it, the more we were convinced that God was still calling us to Taiwan. And what it did is it strengthened our resolve. It strengthened our faith in God and in God's call for us. It increased our longing to return. And it's this longing, I think, that that is important for us as well. Waiting is meant to produce in you a God-honoring dissatisfaction with the status quo. It's to make you long for something greater. So friends, don't long for the end of COVID. You're not longing for the end of COVID. You're longing for the end of sin in this world. You're longing for the return of Jesus. When he comes back, he will make all crooked paths straight. He will bring the new heavens and the new earth down to us. He will make all things new. He will make all things right. He will wipe every tear from your eye. 
And lastly, waiting on God's goodness, it gives us peace because it gives us rest. Towards the end of Acts, Paul gets arrested, is sent to Caesarea. He's in custody at Herod's residence. And kind of in not even a full sentence, it says, when two years had elapsed, and it kind of goes on with Paul's story, but maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I'm convinced that this was God giving Paul a time of rest, a time where he could just not have to go anywhere because he couldn't go anywhere and not to do anything because he could, really couldn't do anything. He was under house arrest. I'm sure many of you feel like you've been under house arrest as well. But see, Paul, up until that point, he'd gone through a lot. He'd endured stoning and beatings and lashings. He'd been traveling all over the Mediterranean, going from place to place, teaching and appointing elders, strengthening the churches. And I think God truly, in his kindness to Paul, was giving him a time of rest. Waiting helps us grow in peace because we realize our good father only gives us what we need when we need it out of his love for us. Everything happens according to his will. We don't have to worry about the when and the what. And I think as parents, we kind of understand this. We don't give our kids everything they want, whenever they want it, um, at all times, right? We have the common sense to know when to dispense, when to deny, when to delay. I know dispense is kind of a weird word there, but I wanted all D's. Dispense, deny, delay. Don't you think that God, our Heavenly Father, knows how to do the same with us? Jesus says in Luke 12, do not be anxious about your life. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Waiting helps us to realize that no matter how much we worry, how anxious we are, how much we want something to happen so badly, there's just no point to it. Waiting helps us to go to Jesus and to find our rest in him. And I, uh, I'll be honest, this one is the one that's hardest for me personally. You know, I have hope that God will accomplish his plans. I have hope that, that his, his will will be perfect in the way that it's carried out in my life. And I have faith that he has the power to do that. But that doesn't, doesn't always stop me from worrying and being anxious. There's always something that, that, that seems to, to do that. But being intentional in our waiting means we stay connected to God through the whole process. How? The ordinary means of grace. Prayer. And I know you've heard this before. It doesn't sound special, right? That's why they're the ordinary means of grace. Prayer. Read your Bible. Worship and sing fellowship with others, take the sacraments, stay dedicated to these things, even in the time of COVID as best you can. And as mundane as these things may seem to us, this is the way God normally works in our lives. I'll conclude with this. Uh, A story and an encouragement. My wife and I are are no strangers to waiting, and it's, it's always dangerous for someone to, well, a pastor to use it themselves in their own sermon illustration. 
But I hope you hear this as a testimony and not, I mean, it's not even something to brag about, to be honest. <laughs> but on October 9th, 2000, my wife and I went on our very first date. It was a Monday night. And as we were getting to know each other and as we were talking, we realized that we both had a heart for missions. And from that time to the time that we got married and finally was able to go out, it was 11 years. And of course, so much happened during that time, but I firmly believe that in our waiting, God was preparing us. He was breaking us down he was building us up again. He was molding us and getting us ready to see and to witness, to observe and to participate all that he was doing in East Asia. He was strengthening our hope. He was strengthening our faith. What about our peace? Well, my, my oldest daughter, she turned 12 yesterday. And we call her our miracle child. Because after years of struggling with infertility and so many doctor visits, various treatments and drugs and so much ex expectation and so much heartbreak, in a moment of, I think, was an act of sheer desperation and really an act of complete surrender, my wife lifted up this prayer to God. She said, Lord, if you can better use us as missionaries without us being parents, if you're better glorified in our lives without children, then let your will be done. And she wept as she prayed that prayer. But she had peace. One week later, she was pregnant. And we know it was one week because when you're struggling with infertility, you keep track of everything. God didn't answer her prayer because she was being extra holy. Or she was living an extraordinarily obedient life. I believe he heard our prayer, her prayer, because we were holding on to certain things in this life so tightly. It was hindering our relationship with God. It was hindering our worship of God. And through his grace, the waiting, it helped us to sort those things out. And so knowing that God is sovereign, powerful, good, it should encourage us to wait on him with hope with faith and peace. He is in control. He is able to accomplish his will, and he loves us. And it moves beyond just knowing these things about God. We must believe these things about God deeply, deeply in our hearts. We must do so actively, intentionally. We must do it in connection to him. And I've already run way past my time, but... The last word of encouragement is this, friends. God is also waiting. God is also waiting. Like Pastor Owen mentioned last week, he's waiting for the rebellious younger sons to return to him. 
He's waiting for the self-righteous older brothers to return to him. He's waiting for those who do not know him yet, who have not of the fold, to hear the voice of Jesus call and to bring them in to be part of God's family. And so I encourage you, if you never put your faith in Jesus, consider now a time, the week before Easter, perfect. Put your faith in him. One day, friends, God will no longer wait. He will return. Jesus will come. And on that day, there will be judgment. And for those of us who are in Christ, it will be a glorious day. It will be a joyous day. It will be a day like no other. But I'm afraid that if you're not in Christ, that day will be very terrible for you. Let us use this time of waiting as a time of proactive connectedness to God. Use it as a time of preparation, of increasing your faith and longing for resting and reflecting in Jesus and in God and his goodness. Grow in your hope. Grow in your faith. Grow in your peace. And then you will begin experiencing the blessedness of waiting. Let's pray. Father, all of us are, in one sense or another, waiting for something. Some of us are dealing with issues related to COVID. Some of us are dealing with infertility or sickness. Some of us are waiting for children who have gone astray. So many things, God. But encourage us, O Lord. Remind us, O Lord, that you are sovereign. That nothing happens out of your control. Remind us that you are powerful. That you're able to accomplish all of your will. Remind us, God, that you are good. That you see us in our pain. In our weariness. In our suffering. Cause us to turn to you, Lord, each day, each day, in your word, in prayer. Help us to stay connected to you so that we might grow in our hope and who, who you are, that it might strengthen our faith and resolve, that it would give us peace, that we might not be anxious, that we might not worry. We thank you that you are a God that sees us and hears us, that you did not leave us as children of wrath, but sent your son that we might be children of God. How great it is to be children of God. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you, O Lord, might have been glorified today in our worship. And as we continue, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.